is the Mayfair Witchcast, where I tell my favorite person, me, Tim, my favorite story. So listen along every week as I break down this story chapter by chapter with that insight, me. Warning, we are not professionals. This story contains many triggers. We talk about them as gently as we can. But I'm just a girl telling her husband an amazing story of a family of witches, ghosts, ancient orders, lust, and love. So join us for a read-along in discussion of the lives of the Mayfair witches. Howdy. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, that didn't quite feel right either. I don't... Awkward um... beginnings. Hello, listeners. <laughs> Welcome back to the Mayfair Witchcast. Today, we are going to finish up chapter 23, and we're going to do chapter 24. But first. <laughs> but first. I need a recap. You need a recap? Yeah. So, last time we talked about the conversation between Aaron and Cortland, where Cortland tried to poison Aaron and then was successful later, or somebody was successful later, and actually poisoning him, in which he survives. Luckily, thanks to the Telemasco. Yeah. They get to him in time. Rush him to the hospital. He lives. He's got some trauma. That was the end of that part. He ended that part by talking about how he still had investigators and how they were going to hear from Juliet Milton from time to time again. Even though she had retired. And the next part of the chapter is titled, Deirdre's Story Continues. He starts by saying, My investigators in Texas were three highly professional detectives. So, two of them worked for the United States government, and all three were warned to never disturb or frighten Deirdre. He explains he is concerned for her about her happiness and her peace of mind. And she is telepathic. And if you come within 50 feet of her, she's going to know you're there. She's going to know you're watching her. Please take care. They do. They follow his instructions. And if Deirdre ever knew she was being watched or followed, they, they didn't know about it. So she goes into her fall semester. She remembers she's in college. The Texas Women's University. Everybody likes her. Cortland visits often. That Christmas, she goes back to Cortland's house for the Christmas holiday. Um, and family gossip says that she wouldn't even see or speak to Carlotta during this time. <laughs> Legal gossip says that Carlotta and Cortland are still not speaking. So they're still battling. By spring, Deirdre has begun to deteriorate. She's crying all night. One evening, 
She's picked up by campus police in a little park. Um, apparently, she's confused as to where she is. She misses too many classes. She's put on compulsory attendance. She's inattentive. Maybe she's ill. By April, she's beginning to suffer nausea every morning. Nobody wants to tell on her. They're all scared. Finally, the dorm mother figures it out. She's pregnant. Because, <laughs> you know, what else? She breaks down, has to be hospitalized. Cortland comes and gets her on May 1st. What happens after that is a mystery. But Deirdre's having a baby. By the next time she's taken by an ambulance from the house, three weeks later, she's heavily sedated and with a nurse. Gossip all around town is that she's pregnant and soon to be married. And her almost husband is a college professor who's a married man. This is quite the scandal, as you can imagine. And these people, you know, they've been talking about Mayfairs for generations. This is just like, you know, this is who they gossip about. Local celebrities. It said Carla would have no part of it, but... You know, Miss Bell and Miss Millie are still taking Deirdre out shopping and they get her a blue dress and blue satin shoes for the wedding. I know it wasn't super common to wear white during this time. I know quite a few women even later than this that didn't wear white. Um, so the clerks at this, at the store, um, the, there's, they report that she is so drugged. She, her words are slurred and she doesn't even know what's going on. Juliet Milton cannot help herself. <laughs> they get a long letter from her talking about how Beatrice has been to First Street and seen Deirdre and brought her a whole bunch of gifts. Why ever did she go home to that house instead of Cortland's? Juliet Milton wonders. But it's because she didn't have a choice. Because science in those days and they didn't, they believed, according to Aaron, medical science in those days believed the placenta of the baby protected it from drugs injected into the mother. Which I, I, I buy it. So she's heavily drugged. And when she leaves the hospital, she doesn't even know what's going on. It's just. So. Cortland and Carlotta are continuing to fight. And then. They get word. That on July 1st. Deirdre's future husband. The professor. Who was going to leave his wife. To marry Deirdre has died. When he was on his way to New Orleans, a broken tire rod causes him to go off the road and hit a tree, and then the car bursts into flames. Deirdre isn't even 18 years old yet, and she is unmarried, and her baby will be given up for a family adoption. 
Carlotta arranges the whole thing. Cortland is outraged. He is still not allowed in the house or to see Deirdre, to hear it from her own lips that she wants this. Everyone seems to believe this story about the professor, but it's just simply not true. <laughs> no one ever saw her with any college professors. There is no proof that any professor died at that time. In fact, there's not even like a motor accident that happens on that road on that time at all. Doesn't happen. Because, you know, the, the Talamasco. And they, by the time they put this all together, the adoption's already underway. This all happens fast. The family seems to be on board with Ellie adopting the baby, except for Cortland. He's the one that doesn't want this. What happened? Who's the dad? We'll get there. Oh, okay. So I didn't miss something. Um... Apparently, it may be this professor, but no. That's the, the story is it's this professor. Because well, she's all girls college, right? Yes. So, who knows? So, the only men around are professors. So, Lasher's a demon or whatever. Right. There's no way that's happening. Or is it? Well, hold for the text, please. <laughs> Continue. This is where Aaron says... What did happen behind the scenes all those months at First Street? Who knows? One person of whom we know Deirdre was seeing during this time was Cortland, right? She's visiting him and all yeah. that. Yeah, I guess that could be the case too. He's a fucking creep. Yeah. So she's in confinement, to use the old-fashioned term, which in this instance might be correct, Aaron says, because really she is confined in this house and she's not allowed to see anyone. They didn't receive any interviews on this until 1988, many years later, where the intending physician would come out, which is what we read in the very first chapter. And then Father Lafferty's thing, which was like week second or third chapter. By October 1st, Cortland is desperate. He wants to speak to Deirdre still. He calls Carlotta over and over again. He's turned away over and over again. By October 20th, he tells his secretary that... He would get into that house and see his niece, even if he has to break the door down. At five o'clock that very afternoon, a neighbor spots Cortland, sitting on the curb of the house. His clothes are all disheveled, and there's blood coming from a cut on his head. And he's like, get me an ambulance. He pushed me down the stairs. And that's all he'll say about it. So, of course, ambulance comes. He's seen by an intern who quickly determines that Cortland is covered with severe bruises. 
his wrist is broken. He's bleeding from the mouth. The intern says, this man has internal injuries and he calls for immediate assistance. This is when Cortland grabs the intern and tells him to listen, that it's very important that he help Deirdre Mayfair, who's being held prisoner in her own home. They're taking her baby away from her against her will, help her. And then Cortland died. Mm-hmm. Not like he was going to. So these are like these are Cortland's last words. He's pleading for someone to go help Deirdre. And he dies. Fuck. Even for a creep, that's I mean. Wow. Cheers for um Cortland, I guess. For the good part of him. A superficial postmortem indicated massive internal bleeding and severe blows to the head. When the young intern pressed for some sort of police investigation, Cortland's sons immediately quieted him. They talked to their cousin Carlotta and he fell down the steps and he refused medical assistance and she didn't even know he was sitting out on the curb. And she's beside herself when she finds out, and she's pissed the neighbor didn't even ring the bell. Whatever. (laughs) If you believe that. No one saw him. Out of them three old ladies and the maid. So Cortland's funeral is a huge affair. The family's told the same story about him falling. Cortland's son Pierce tells everyone that Carlotta had been there and he makes like some vague statement that in fact there is no man Carlotta saw it herself he fell so did Nancy she was there she tried to catch him but she didn't (laughs) as for the adoption that's happening Pierce is behind it Ellie's his niece and she's gonna give the baby just what it she needs just gonna do good. It's tragic Cortland was against it, but Cortland's 80 and his judgment's off. So the funeral proceeds. Um, and then they get the story that um these um cousins, these older cousins were standing around at the funeral after Pierce's little speech, and they were joking sarcastically. Sure, there's no man in that house. No, no man at all. Just those nice ladies. I've never seen a man there, have you? No, no man at First Street. No, sir. Like, these are just some quotes they throw in there. Around comes January 1988. 30 years later. Rita May, Dreyer, Lonigan enters the picture. And he learns that she had desperately tried to reach him at the time and failed. He talks a little bit about Rita. We already know, you know, she married Jerry. We know the story. We heard it. Where Rowan says, Rita Mae, they're going to take my baby. Help me. Deirdre throws a small white card to Rita Mae. Contact this man. 
Get him to help me. Tell him they're going to take my baby away. Carlotta physically attacks Rita Mae. They fight. Rainstorm. She gets home, discovers the card's unreadable. All she gets is Talamasca, his name, can't find him. And it's not until 1988 when he encounters her again at the funeral of Nancy. And he gives her an identical card that she recognizes. He says it's heartbreaking to learn of Deirdre's plea for help when he does. But he probably couldn't have done anything, really. If Cortland couldn't do anything, who yeah. is he to stop it? And he's probably right. So, November 7th, 1959, Deirdre gives birth at 5 o'clock in the morning to Rowan Mayfair. Nine pounds, eight ounces, a healthy, fair-haired baby girl. And I think this is a good time for us to take a break. <laughs> tragic death. Another Mayfair tragic death. Oh, Cortland? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a victim. We'll hear more of that, too, when we come back. So yeah, Rowan is born. And we've already talked about how medicine at this time is, and especially how medicine at this time treats women. Um, if you don't know anything about that, listeners, I highly suggest you look it up. It's interesting and terrifying. And I'm thankful I'm alive in the time I'm in. Even though we've got a long way to go, uh, it's very, it's so much better. So hours after the birth, she's coming out of general anesthesia. Apparently they put her in to give birth. She's surrounded by Ellie Mayfair, Father Lafferty, Carlotta's there. And there are two sisters of mercy in the room. Okay. Father Lafferty's holding the baby and he explains that he just baptized it in the Mercy Hospital Chapel, naming it Rowan Mayfair. He shows her the signed baptismal certificate. He says... Now kiss your baby, Deirdre, and give her to Ellie. Ellie is ready to go. <laughs> Here's your baby. Goodbye. So Gossip says that, you know, Deirdre does as she's told. But she insisted that the child have the Mayfair name. And once all that shit is settled, Father Lafferty says it's best leave her alone. So sad. And over a decade later, Sister Bridget Marie will tell them the meaning of Rowan's name. 
So the story is that apparently Carlotta is there to be the godmother and they got some random doctor to be the godfather. And Carlotta tells Father Lafferty that the child is to be named Rowan. And he's like, now you know, Carlotta, that that's not a saint's name. It sounds like a pagan name to me. Now, my family has had this exact problem. <laughs> well, that threw me off. Where was I? Okay. So, yeah, he's like, it sounds like a pagan name to me. To which she answers, Father, don't you know what a rowan tree was? And that it was used to ward off witches and all manner of evil? There's not a hut in Ireland where the woman of the house did not put up a rowan branch over the door to protect her family from witches and witchcraft. And that's been true throughout Christian times. Rowan is to be the name of this child. And Ellie is like, yeah, she just nods her head. They call her the little Millie Mouth that she always was. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sister Bridget Marie calls her a Millie Mouth, which I'm not sure I've ever heard in any other place, but I kind of know exactly what she means. Erin, Erin's like, is this, is this true? She's in Sister Bridget Marie's like, she nods, yeah, but a lot of good it did. This is where Erin asked the question. Who is the father of Rowan Mayfair? So, apparently there's routine blood typing done. And it indicates that the baby's blood type matches no other than Cortland. Erin mm -hmm. says here, Allow us to repeat here that Cortland may also have been the father of Stella. And recent information from Bellevue has last at last confirmed that Anthony Mayfair may have been his daughter as well. So that's a three time in a row. Same dad. Mm. I don't. It is fiction. I don't know. We've had, I read a lot of books that have this generational incest thing. Like Game of Thrones has it. Um, nothing else has come to mind, but it, I'm, I know I've read it before, but nothing else like drives it into your head is this bad, you know? And yeah, there's definitely something I'm getting this time around more than I've gotten with reading it younger, I think. Deirdre goes mad before she even leaves the hospital after giving birth to Rowan. She cries by the hour. She screams to herself in an empty room. Shit like, you killed him. Or, you left me alone among my enemies. Or, you betrayed me. And she's quickly committed to St. Anne's Asylum, where she becomes catatonic. And by the end of the month, she's like a total vegetable. Sister Bridget Marie believes she is shouting at the invisible lover. 
for killing the college professor. But killing Cornwall. <laughs> yeah, we know this is not true. So was it Lasher who pushes Coiling down the stairs? Or maybe did he scare him so bad that he fell down the stairs? And if he did, why? This is actually the end of Deirdre's life, according to Erin. Um, for 17 years, she's incarcerated in various mental institutions and given lots of drugs and lots of electric shock treatment, which is another fucked up practice that was overwhelmingly given to women over men to cure. And it was used to cure things that were not even mental illnesses. Yeah, they used it for everything back then. Yeah. Lobotomies. Yeah, lobotomies are just as bad. They don't give her a lobotomy, though. They give her a, um, they, what do they call a chemical lobotomy, though, with the drugs, is basically. So when she gets home, she's a ghost. In 1976, she's back at First Street forever, sitting on a side porch that is screened in just for her, motionless in a rocking chair. She has become a, quote, mindless idiot, as gossip calls her, or a nice bunch of carrots. Not very nice. Not nice, guys. Was it really like that? Let, I don't know. Does anybody know? Let me know. Aaron wonders how such treatment could be justified. She ceases to speak at all in 1962. She's tranquilized. And when she's not, she's screaming and crying and breaking things. Years pass. There's countless sightings by everybody around her of the mysterious brown-haired man. The nurses see some man going into her room. A doctor claims to have seen a mysterious visitor. Workmen can't do work on First Street House. Some repairs are completed, though. Air conditioning's put in. They upgrade the electricity. Like, just enough to... Get by. Of course, this is when Carlotta is supervising. The gardener still comes. Sometimes. Otherwise, First Street slumbers beneath the oak branches. Frog singing. Stella's pool. Lily pads. Wild irises. Beautiful scene. Many people stop and look at Deirdre in her chair. They glimpse a handsome cousin. Nurses sometimes quit because of the man who comes and goes. Numerous other medical persons leave the family abruptly. They continue to try to track these people down now. What comes from this data is a frightening possibility that Deirdre's mind has been destroyed to the point 
where she cannot control her evocation of Lasher. <laughs> These are Aaron's words. He says, there is another very distinct possibility. Lasher may be there to comfort her, to look out for her, and to keep her happy in a way that they may not understand. So, in 1980, which is eight years ago from when he's writing this, he gets an article of Deirdre's clothing. Somehow. He says he manages to obtain an article of Deirdre's clothing. He takes this back and puts it in the hands of Lauren Grant. She is the most powerful psychometric they have. She knows nothing per se about the Mayfair witches. When she holds it, she says, I see happiness. This is the garment of someone who is blissfully happy. She lives in dreams of green gardens and twilight skies. There are low-hanging branches. A swing? Is this a child? No. This is a woman. Oh, and she has the most beautiful lover. Oh, such a lover. And she goes on about him for a little while. And Aaron's like, is is this the subconscious of the life of Deirdre Mayfair? This is when he says, in closing, let me add a few details. Since 1976, Deirdre has always worn the Mayfair emerald around her neck. While she's in a white flannel nightgown, she's still wearing this outlandish emerald necklace. He has made three visits to New Orleans and returned numerous times since. Walking the Garden District, attending funerals like Miss Bell's and Miss Millie's and Miss Nancy's and Pierce, the last of Cortland's sons, who died of a heart attack in 84. At each funeral, he sees Carlotta and their eyes meet. And there are times when he has placed his card in her hand. She never contacts him. She never makes any more legal threats. He says she's very old now. He says it's time to examine in detail her only child and heir, Rowan Mayfair, who has never set foot in her native city since the day she was taken away. Although it's much too soon to attempt to put the information on Rowan together in a narrative, they have some critically important notes. They're random materials. There is indication that Rowan doesn't know anything about her family or history or inheritance. Also, she may be the strongest witch the Mayfair family has ever produced. And that is where chapter 23 finally ends. Hmm. Yes, that's Deirdre's life. We are caught up. We are back to the beginning yeah. of this book.
Chapter 24. Let's take a break and then let's get into it. We will be back with chapter 24. Not part of the file. Is there a name? Just 24. 24. with chapter 24. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> Are you excited? That's, yeah, we're back to the future. Who do you think we're going to hear from? Nice to hear from Michael. Like, what is his fucking thoughts? He's about to meet this most powerful witch. Oh. But, uh, that's not who we're hearing from. Uh, way to Ch disappoint. Chapter 24 begins with The air conditioning felt good after the hot streets, but as she stood quietly for a moment in the foyer of Lonigan and Sons, unobserved and therefore anonymous, she realized that the heat had already made her faintly sick. We open with Ron, standing alone, unnoticed, among what must be 200-some other Mayfairs. She's trying to work up the courage to walk up to the coffin and look at her mother, whom she's never seen before. And she can't understand why she can't because, like, you know, she's done autopsies and surgery and she went to medical school. And she's seen dead bodies plenty of times, but this is very different. She's, like, frozen in place. And she sees all these people, young and old, and they're describing them all. She notices a girl, perhaps 12 years old, staring at her with a ribbon in her red hair. Never in all her years in California had she seen a girl of that age, or any child for that matter, with a real ribbon in her hair. And this was a big bow of peach-colored satin. This is unlike anything Rowan has ever experienced before. It is like stepping into the past for her. She is super overwhelmed. She's thinking about Ellie's funeral, of course, and how different it was. And she's thinking about the things Ellie asked for, like a rosary and all the other weird shit she doesn't understand at the time. She thinks about the house and how it was her mom's house and it's the one that Michael keeps seeing and oh, is it her house now she's thinking and she's watching these people and wondering like are these her people? She wonders when or will she ever see Michael again? And what if Michael could, like, lay his hands on Deirdre's hands? Like, what would he see? What would he be able to tell her? This is when the door opens behind her. She steps to the side. An older couple walks past her as if she's not there. And she hears someone say, Beatrice, darling, come in. Um, no, no one's seen her. But she's due to arrive any time. 
<laughs> so they're obviously talking about her. She's still standing there, frozen. She moves over to, like, a far corner, and now she can see the coffin clearly. She's like, go out to the coffin. She's like, but they'll all see you. But they won't know who you are. She can't move. And then, all of a sudden, someone's talking to her. She, she wants to answer, but she can't. The little girl with the ribbon is still watching her. Like, why aren't you answering? You know, the little girl's got this, like, look on her face. Like, almost like Rowan's kind of reading her thoughts. But it's, it's Jerry. It's Jerry Lonigan, And he's all like, can I help you? You're not Dr. Mayfair, are you? Goes mm -hmm. on. He's like, Dr. Mayfair? Like, hello? Poor girl. She's frozen. She has no words. Nothing comes out. Jerry puts his arm around her. And he's like, do you want to see her, Dr. Mayfair? See her? Talk to her? You know. She's like, yeah, I want to see her. Talk to her. I want to be loved by her. In her head. She's thinking this, you know. She nods. And a hush falls over everyone. They all look at her. Awkward. She looks at the red-haired girl with the ribbon again as she passes by. All the children have stopped playing like they were before. before the, there was kids, young and old, kids running around playing, old people talking. All the kids stopped playing. All the old people stopped talking. Mr. Lonigan's like, do you, do you want to sit down, Dr. Mayfair? And... You know, like, like, he's good. He's good at his job. She's still, like, um, thinking, like, why can't I do this? Like, I've done this before. I've seen dead bodies before, but this is her mother. It's different. Then a woman steps up behind the little girl and is like, Rowan, I'm Alicia Mayfair. I was Deirdre's fourth cousin once removed. This is Mona, my little girl. And then there's a Rowan. I'm a I'm Pierce Mayfair, says a handsome young man. I'm I'm Cortland's great grandson. Then there's another voice that comes in with, "Darling, I'm Beatrice, your cousin." And she touches Rowan's cheek. And then there's a Cecilia Mayfair, Barclay's granddaughter. Her grandfather is Julian's second son. And, you know, like, she's being bombarded. I am Peter Mayfair. We'll talk later. Garland was my father. Did Ellie ever talk about him? And, dear God, they were all Mayfairs. Polly, Agnes, Philip, Eugene, and on and on. How many of them could there possibly be? Not a family, but a legion. And, you know, it fucking goes on. People are kissing her cheek. Oh, people are talking like, oh, have you seen Carlotta? Jerry's like, uh, Miss Carlotta's feeling pretty bad. Show me this at the church. People are like, oh, yeah, she's 90. Oh, do you want a glass of water, Rowan? Like, she's as white as a sheet, Pierce. Get her a glass of water. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's just all this conversation going on around her. And she meets a... Uh, 
Magdalene, which I love that. I love that name. Magdalene Mayfair. She is Remy's great-granddaughter. And she's like, this is my son Garvey and my daughter Lindsay. And, oh, did Ellie tell you about Clay and Vincent? And she thinks, like, no. Never. About anyone. And then she remembers her mom's words. Promise me you will never go back. That you'll never try to find out. All these people, why? Why the secrecy, she wonders. And then someone's like, um, do you want to sit down? Are you alright? You know, so overwhelming. Could you even imagine, like, how overwhelmed are you right now with all those names? Imagine actually being there and it being real for you. Like, fuck. We just had a tragedy on our way there, too. Yeah. A cup. Well, she had the fucking thing happen in her house. That's scary as shit. Then she had an assault happen to her on the fucking plane ride. That's even worse. Now she's at the, her mother's funeral, whom she's never met and wondered about her whole life. Not her whole life, but... And she's simultaneously betraying the mother that she did know and love. It's a lot. It is a lot. So she's holding on tight to Jerry Lonigan's hand. He says something to them about her paying her respects. And he's kind of telling them to back off. And someone else comes up and he's like, I'm Guy Makefair. I'm Andrea's son. I don't even know who these people are. He's like, this is my wife, Stephanie. We're Grady's daughter. She's Ellie's first cousin. So these are cousins married to each other. Just, you know, <laughs> bombarding her. Like, back off. She wants to respond. You know, she's like trying to nod. And then, this is Fielding Mayfair, Clay's son. He's a very old man. So old that she can see all the bones in his skull. They are holding him up. He can't stand by himself. And all this is so that he can see her. So she puts out her hands. And and they're like, he wants to, to kiss you, honey. So she, she does. She lets him kiss her on the cheek. These people, um... She's slowly realizing, or we are slowly realizing, that we're more there to see her than for Deirdre. Huh. At least some of them. So he's saying something about a Stan Mayfair at Riverbend, and she's like, what the fuck is Riverbend? <laughs> she knows nothing of what we know yet. Someone's like, I think she's going to faint. <laughs> She's like, oh, they're, they're, surely they're not talking about me. This is when Jerry's like, do you want me to take you up to the coffin? Oh, no, it's not Jerry. It's the young man, the handsome one. I'm Pierce. I met you just a second ago. I'm Ellie's first cousin. So she gets up to the foot of the coffin. She looks up to the right of the foot of the coffin. There's a white-haired man that she knows. And there's a dark-haired woman beside him, crying and saying the rosary. And they're both looking at her. But how in the world could she possibly know this man or anybody here? 
but she does. She knows him. She knows he's English. So Jerry's still helping her forward toward the, you know, up to the coffin. Pierce is beside her. And someone's like, she's sick. Get her some water. And they're like, maybe you should sit down. She shakes her head no. She looks again at the white-haired Englishman. And the woman shaking her head and crying and wiping her nose. And they're whispering to each other. And then it comes to her. The cemetery where Graham and Ellie are. That's the man she's seen that day that was like, I know your family in New Orleans. This is that man. Also, that was standing outside Michael's house two nights ago. Again, they ask her if she wants a glass of water. And she's just thinking, like, how is this shit possible? And what does this all have to do with Michael? Then Pierce is like, I'm going to go get her a chair. Let's just sit her right here. <laughs> <laughs> Someone hands her a drink. They're like, here, this is nice and cold. Just take a drink. It smells like wine. She can't. She wants to, but she can't move her mouth. Um, she tries to smile and just kind of like says no. Um, then the white-haired Englishman comes toward her. She's like, who are you? Why are you here? She's thinking. Nothing's coming out of her mouth yet, though. She's still frozen. She feels like she's going to fall. This is when the Englishman, she calls him, but we know it's Aaron, grabs her left arm, and Mr. Lonigan, Jerry still got her by the right arm, and Aaron says, Rowan, listen to me. Michael would be here if he could. I'm here in Michael's place. Michael will come tonight just as soon as he can. She's shocked and relieved. Michael's coming. He is somewhere close. How is he somewhere close? She thinks all in her head and Aaron responds out loud with, yes, very close and unavoidably detained <laughs> and truly put out that he cannot be here. <laughs> oh, fuck, Aaron, I love you so much. <sighs> so he's there for her. He's there for Aaron. He is the support she needs at the very right moment. He says the right thing right when it, she needs it most. And he says, what can I do for you now? Do you want to step up to the coffin? She thinks. Yes, please. Take me up. Please help me. Make my legs move. They're not moving. This is when Aaron flips his arm around her and he guides her up to the coffin. And conversation starts up again. Thank God. You know, people start murmuring again. She hears people talking in the background. Oh, she just didn't want to come to the funeral parlor. That's the truth of it. She's furious that we're all here. Someone else is like, oh, keep quiet. She's 90. It's 100 degrees outside. You know, this just background bullshit about Carlotta. She's thinking to herself, like, you have to do this. You have to make it up there and look at her. She remembers 
Promise me you'll never go back there. You'll never try to find out. The words of her adoptive mother, Ellie. Aaron's holding her and he kind of sends out the vibe of Michael will come. Don't worry. She forces herself to look. She sees the face of her mother. She remembers her other mother saying, and Stella's face was so beautiful in the coffin. She had such beautiful black hair. The resemblance is obviously there. Someone's like, she's going to faint. Help her. <laughs> Pierce, help her. <laughs> I just, oh. And they're like, no, we got her. She's cool. So Jerry, you know, he's like, I got this. I'm sure he's done this a lot. I'm sure he does have this. Mm -hmm. She starts to relax. Eventually. After seeing her mother. Realizes she can speak. And that others around her are crying too. She backs away. With their eyes still fixed on the coffin. She lets the Englishman guide her to a little small room. Then Mr. Lonigan is telling her that it is time for everyone to come up one by one. And that the priest is here and he's ready. In astonishment, Rowan saw a tall old man bend gracefully and kiss the dead woman's forehead. Beatrice, the pretty one, came next and whispered something as she kisses the dead woman. A child is lifted next to do the same, and on and on this goes. People are saying goodbye. Then there's the crying one with the, with the black hair, and as she comes up, she says to Rowan, she didn't want to give you up. Rita May, Mr. Lonigan hisses. So this is who the, the dark-haired woman standing next to Aaron is. This is Rita May. Of course she's there, of course. And Rowan whispers, like, is this true? Vonnegut pushes his wife away, out of the door and down a small hallway. And the Englishman gives her a little nod, letting her know. Yep, it's true. His eyebrows rising filled him with sadness and wonder. <sighs> Aaron. They're still coming, one by one. She's like, did they all know about me? Did they all remember her? Have all these children heard about me before? Um, and then like, then there's the handsome one was watching her from far away. And on and on come the cousins. Whoa. Crazy. Lonigan asks her if she wants to be alone with her mother again. That's your time at the end when they've all passed. The priest will wait, but you don't have to. Then she looks into the Englishman's mild gray eyes. Far down the hallway is his wife, Rita Mae, just standing waiting. And she's like, yes, alone. One more time. Her eyes search out the eyes of Rita Mae in the shadows at the end of the little hall. True. Rita Mae mouths as she nods gravely. Yes, to kiss her goodbye. Yes, the way they are kissing her. 
And that is where chapter 24 ends. Poor Rowan. Funerals are weird to begin with. Her situation is something I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. All these people. They all know who she is. She has no idea. We know who they are, but she doesn't. Well, she just knows the Englishman. She recognizes <laughs> him from that one time. And all that other time where he was standing like a creep outside Michael's house. <laughs> it's interesting. 200 of them. Um, so we are introduced uh, to a character in this chapter named Mona. She's a girl of maybe 12 with red hair. Well, I thought she was a ghost at first. Um, no. Uh, no. She's a real girl. She is a character that will be in the books to come. So, just thought it was noteworthy, her introduction. I don't know if without me telling you that, if you would, if anybody would pick up on this the first time. I certainly did not. Any predictions on where Rowan is going to go from here? I'm assuming with Aaron. She's kind of trusting him right now. She knows he knows where Michael is. I mean, it sounds like his funeral is going to be a bit, though, too. So, doing a whole ritual. And they're going down somewhere else where Carlotta will be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. This is just like a viewing of the body. This isn't even the actual, like, there's probably a whole fucking Catholic uh, mass and everything yet. Still to come. Yeah. So, you're probably right about the funeral thing. So, yeah, the next chapter is 25, The File on the Mayfair, which is part 10, Rowan Mayfair. And it is broken up into a bunch of small sections. So, we'll, we'll probably get all through that next episode. We got answers. We did. We got some answers. We got caught up, and we got caught up with Rowan. So next time we'll see what Aaron has to say about Rowan in the file. Until then, listeners, if you have anything you want to add, any thoughts, any opinions, even if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at MayfairCast. You can email us at TheMayfairWitchCast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can find us in all the places. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, farewell. Bye.